0: Have you ever heard the story of the crippled prince? It's a story three millenniums old, but as up to date in meaning for you and for me as any letter we might receive this very day. Let me read you the story. I'm reading first of all from Second Samuel chapter 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, you would not probably call your son Mephibosheth. That's an old-fashioned name. But it has a very modern meaning for us. Think on the story, and then we'll try to explain it. Do you see the nurse? in the nursery of the palace, playing with the young prince. And then she hears a cry. And looking out the window, she sees people pouring out the gates with little bundles of goods on their heads. And then across the hill, she sees a stream of soldiers coming down, coming down in disarray. And she realises what has happened. The prince's father and grandfather have been defeated in battle and the enemy is coming. So she gathers up the young prince, a precious bundle, out the door of the nursery, down the steps of the palace, across the courtyard, and then alas, she stumbles. From her arms rolls the baby prince. Quickly she gathers him up and continues to run out the gate, across the fields, up into the hills, without stopping until she found a little cave, big enough for her and the baby prince and it was only then that she noticed that Mephibosheth was now lame on both his feet i turn now to the ninth chapter of the same book of second samuel to find out what happened when this crippled prince grew up second samuel chapter nine and david said Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, Your servant is he. The king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled on both his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? Zeba said to the king, He's in the house of Maker, the son of Ammiel at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth came to David and fell on his face and did obeisance. And David said, Mephibosheth! He answered, Behold your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I'll show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I'll restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he bowed low before the king and said, What is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Zeba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and, all, and to all his house I have given to your master's son. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, shall bring in the produce, that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall always eat at my table. It says at the close of the chapter, So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Please note I've read you three times from Scripture about the prince being crippled. Well, think on the second half of the story. Here's a crippled prince in exile, and one day over the hills from which he had come as a child comes a stranger dressed in the apparel of the king's court. And as the messenger comes near, he says, Are you Mephibosheth? I am, replied the prince. King David wants to see you. And without doubting and without fearing, the young prince swings up behind the messenger and back they go, up over the hill, back down all the way to Jerusalem. And when Mephibosheth meets David, All he receives is loving kindness, promise, and the fulfilment of the promise. He's given back all the properties of his father and his grandfather. He's made a king again, sitting at the royal table, dining with the king. And now he has a special robe, the long robe that represented royalty. And it's a robe that covers his crippled feet. Why do we tell the story? The Bible is a picture book. Its characters represent us. It's a medical book too. Some people say about some things in scripture, oh, you dare not read that out to a congregation. Sometimes they're right, we dare not. But a medical book must describe the disease it treats. And you and I were born ill. We were born sick. We were born dying. This crippled prince represents you and me. Crippled by a fall. When our first parents fell in Eden, our natures became twisted. That's the only inheritance they could pass on to us, what they themselves had. The fall in Eden, when Adam and Eve fell before Satan and against God, warped every human being's character and nature. We were born without the Holy Spirit because of the fall in Eden. We were born crippled This is why we've had so much trouble in our lives. We could not walk straight until we got to know Christ. The way of man that walketh is not in himself. We have been wanderers and exiles. Mephibosheth was in a place called Lodibar. That means a place of no pasture. That's where we are all our lives until we meet Christ, in a place of no pasture. There's no satisfaction out there. It's not true the devil looks after his own. He doesn't care about his own. Cripples? Yes. We were meant to be kings and, and queens, princes and princesses. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, that's what we'd have been. But we were crippled by a fall. We were crippled on both our feet, morally, spiritually. I read in Romans in the fifth chapter, by the sin of one, condemnation came upon all men. Adam was our representative. Had he succeeded in choosing right He would have been sealed into right choices and we would have been born making right choices. But he erred in his choice. He fell. He fell into sin and we fell with him because he was our representative. So I read in scripture that all men have sinned. I'm reading now from Romans the third chapter. Verse 10 onwards. None is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've done wrong. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Ah, did you notice that last verse? If we're not right with God, we can't be right with man either. When adam sinned against god he paved the way for cain the his brother like the spokes in the wheel the nearer the hub the nearer to each other the nearer we are to god the nearer we are to our fellow man unrighteousness always follows ungodliness that's why god gave us two tables of the law the first table our duty to god second table our duty to men if we keep the first table Having no idols, making no images, reverencing God's name, reverencing God's day. If we do these things, we'll automatically keep the second table of the law. We'll love our parents and honour them. We'll have respect for life and for purity and for property and for reputation. We'll think no evil. But man has miserably failed. Losing his God, he lost himself. Adam's first words recorded in scripture are I was afraid and I hid myself. Man's been running ever since. He's been afraid ever since. He's been hiding ever since. Men cannot accept themselves or their neighbours until they know they're accepted by God. When we know we're right with God then we can accept ourselves and then we can accept our fellow men. So here in scripture it says In Romans 3.19 Whatsoever things the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be found guilty before God. There it is. We were born crippled as much as Mephibosheth. It says in Jeremiah, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then can ye do good who are accustomed to doing evil? The same book says the heart of man is incurably wicked. Deceitful above all things. Have you ever wondered why there's so much about Peter's fall in the account of Christ on the cross? If you read very carefully the Gospels, there's almost as much about Peter's experience as the main essence of Christ's experience in those courtyard scenes. Why is it so, my friends? Because Peter, the Prince of the Apostles, his name always heads the list, wherever the apostles are listed. He opened the church to Jew and Gentile, He, along with his brethren, was the foundation of the church. But that Peter, to whom Christ gave the keys of the kingdom as he gave to his brethren, that Peter petered out when his master needed him most. He betrayed his Lord with cursing and swearing. That Peter, to whom Jesus had said his name was written in heaven. Why is there so much about Peter? In the account of the trial of Christ? To remind us that human nature at its best is not good enough that we are sinners through and through and through. I'm reading from Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward being. Therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Yes, we were brought forth in iniquity, conceived in sin, lacking truth in the inward being i turn again to the book of romans and this time i want to read to you the living bible's translation of verses 20 to 22. no one can ever be made right in god's sight by doing what the law commands For the more we know of god's laws the clearer it becomes that we aren't obeying them his laws serve only to make us see that we are sinners but now god has shown us a different way to heaven not by being good enough and trying to keep his laws, but by a new way. Now God says he'll accept us and acquit us if we trust Jesus Christ to take away our sins. My friend, we are so crooked, so crippled, we have hearts so desperately wicked, we can never depend on our obedience to law. It's too late anyway. We've all broken God's law countless times. And the wages of sin, one sin, is death. I heard my friend Smuts Van Royan use an illustration, which I've often copied. He spoke about, about a man going into a police station saying, I'm responsible for the 12 murders in the district. And the policemen get up very warily and begin to edge toward him. But he says, relax, relax. I've overcome it now. Ah, my friend, so many Christians are trying to overcome their sins in the hope that they can then merit heaven. It's too late. It's too late. One sin, one murder. One murder of God's laws enough. However good a character we develop later, one sin is enough to damn us. Did you get what I read? No one can ever be made right in God's sight by doing what the law commands. For the more we know of God's laws, the clearer it becomes we aren't obeying them. His laws serve only to make us see that we are sinners. But now God has shown us a different way to heaven, not by being good enough and trying to keep his laws, but by a new way. My friend, have you found that new way? It's the way of faith in Jesus Christ. We were ruined by Adam. We had nothing to do with it, but we've been redeemed by the second Adam. We had nothing to do with that. If you believe it, if you receive it, you stand before the throne of God through the imputation of Christ's merits. You stand as though you'd never fallen. Remember. King David gave Mephibosheth a new robe, a royal robe, and his lame feet were covered. And when we believe on Christ, God the Father gives to us a perfect robe of righteousness. He does not see our follies. He does not see our defects. He does not see our failures, not in the sense of reckoning them against us. Will that encourage us in sin? Not one whit. How can we play with what murdered our Saviour? We will hate sin with a perfect hatred. But when we give up trusting in our own accomplishments of law to earn salvation, then, my friend, we will find that we have victory over sin. Sin will not have dominion over us because we're not under law but under grace. What a beautiful story we have in Mephibosheth's account. Did you notice that the kindness that David displayed was purely unmerited? Was David under any obligation to show this kindness? Was there any special excellence in the son of Jonathan to call it forth? No. David had that love even before he knew there was such a person. Was God under any obligation to show mercy to the world? Did God see anything of excellence in the world to call it forth? No. If he'd left humanity to perish forever in its sins, no one could have complained. Angels still would have sung, just and true are thy ways. Thou King of Saints. Was there an excellence in man to call it forth? No. God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The kindness that David showed to Mephibosheth was unsought. The son of Jonathan didn't make any application. He didn't knock at the door of royalty entreating favour. Did the world seek the gift of Christ? No, for two reasons. One, it didn't even feel its need of a saviour. Two, even if it had, It never could have supposed that such a gift was possible. God sent Christ into the world, not only without the world's request, but against the world's will. He came to his own, says Scripture, and his own received him not. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, but the world knew him not. Look at the occasion on which this kindness of David was displayed. It too illustrates God's plan of redemption. The kindness that David showed Mephibosheth was in consideration of someone else. It was for Jonathan's sake. Remember, David had made a covenant with Jonathan and God the Father and God the Son made a covenant too. There could have been hundreds in the empire, perhaps required and desired, more than this lame youth Mephibosheth. Why was he solicited? Because of Jonathan. Why does God show love to you and to me? Why more love to this world than we could ever have anticipated because of our Jonathan, Christ? God is love. Christ is not the cause of God's love, but he is its channel. All blessings, temporal and spiritual, come through Christ. He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on our nature. In all things, sin accepted. Note that the kindness that David showed Mephibosheth was on account of someone else who was very near to the heart of the king. You remember David's cry over Jonathan, I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. I am distressed for thee. Exceeding sweet was thy love to me, sweeter than the love of women. How dear is Christ, the everlasting father. Prophecy calls him mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. The gospel say, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. I do not understand the mysterious connection between Jesus and the everlasting Father. We cannot fully understand the Trinity, though it is true. Our intellect must bow reverently before the mystery. But Scripture calls Christ the only begotten Son. Begotten, not made, for our sakes. Now think of the results which this disinterested kindness from David Think how these results illustrate the same as regards God's kindness in the plan of redemption. First it found out Mephibosheth. King David sent and fetched him. Christ came to seek and to save. Like the man who'd lost one of his sheep, the woman her silver, the father his son. The apostles were sent out in search of God's objects of love. That's why as soon as a person becomes a Christian, he wants to help other people. My friend, you can measure your Christianity by your desire to help others. Do you give and give and give that the gospel might go to others? Do you spend time bringing others to gospel meetings? Do you take time to visit the needy, to help the poor, to comfort the brokenhearted? The gospel springs from a love in the heart of God that sought the needy. Providence, conscience, the gospel... They're all the messengers of God's love. David restored Mephibosheth to his inheritance. He says, I'll restore thee all the lands of thy father. He was to walk the fields and the meadows that his father had often trodden in. God's love restores us to our lost possessions. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. We're not going to be just playing trumpets or other musical instruments in heaven above. Not harps. Not not living in clouds. This earth is to be the eternal inheritance of the saved. It was given to Adam and Eve for us. It will be restored to us. Salvation is paradise regained. Mephibosheth is told, you'll eat bread at my table continually. Ah, We'll always have fellowship with our God, even in the world to come. He'll dwell with us, abide with us and we shall see his face. He says, if any man hear my voice, I'll come into him and sup with him and he with me. Did you notice the command about suitable attendants and helpers? Zebra is told, thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him. God has innumerable agents to employ for the objects of his love. All things work together for good. The bad things and the good things. The bad days, the mad days, the blue days, the dazed days. All the days Christ is with us. And all the things and all those days work together for our good. And the angels, are they not all ministering spirits? Sent forth to minister to them that are to be heirs of salvation? What a beautiful depiction we have of the plan of salvation in this story. But my friend, if you want to see it spelt out in precise detail, you need to read the book of Romans. And I'm reading again from Romans chapter 3, verse 30. No human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now a righteousness from God has been manifested apart from law. Though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness from God through faith in Jesus to all who believe. For there's no difference since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith, to show God's righteousness, because in his divine mercy he had passed over former sins He was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. Our friend, please note, declared righteous by his grace. Grace is unmerited love. As a gift. A gift. All the best things, here and hereafter are gifts. That's true of righteousness and faith and repentance. Look and live and receive. I hear the words of love. I gaze upon the blood. I see the mighty sacrifice, and I have peace with God. My friend, the righteousness by which we are declared righteous is a gift imputed to us. It's not inside us, it's put to our account. And it's a 100%, though it's not inside us. We're not saved by anything inside us. We're saved by what Christ is and what Christ did. That's the righteousness of justification. The righteousness of sanctification, my friend, that is inside us. That's the fruitage of justification, never the cause of it. It's not 100%. Never in this life are we good enough to earn heaven. So don't be discouraged when you make mistakes. You're not good enough whether you made them or not. God loves you whether you make them or not. He accepts you for Christ's sake. And if you believe it, you'll make less and less mistakes. Finally, one day, there's to be the righteousness of glorification. When Jesus comes the second time, and not till then, we'll be praying the Lord's Prayer till he comes. Forgive us our trespasses. Though we hate sin, we'll confess our stumblings. But at his coming, there'll be glorification. Then we'll have a righteousness that's both 100% and inside us. Justification, my friend, takes away the burden of sin's guilt. Sanctification takes away the tyranny, the bondage of sin. The glorification will take away the very presence of sin. And it's all ours in Christ Jesus. If you have him, you have everything. You receive him, the living word, by receiving the written word. For it is written, whoever believeth shall be saved. And he that believeth hath everlasting life. Believe it today, my friend. God bless you.